All right, we're going to begin our, our 2 o'clock afternoon session. And um, I trust you've had a, a good experience so far in the sessions that we've had. Um, I think it might be appropriate at this point to, uh, to recognize uh, Steve Gardner and, and, uh, and Joe McKinney and, and Julie Lestrap. I know Steve's here. I'm not sure if the rest of the crew is here or not, but they, there's Joe. Uh, they put a lot of time in this. Julie's in the in the very back here, and uh, if you would, let's uh, let's express some appreciation to them for their hard work. They put a lot into this and are very infrequently recognized for what they do, and we appreciate it. Um, every year, every spring, we depend on them for a very good program, and they always come through. My name's Les Palach. I'm an associate professor here in the business school, and have the uh, privilege of being able to get us started and uh, then to join you as, a, as an audience in, in being able to take in this information and, and learn from it. But uh, in getting there, let me introduce our, our two uh, presenters today. And um, I believe I'll, I'll put them in the order that I understand that they will be in, so you'll know when to come to the, to the podium or to the lectern and, and to, uh, to get started. The first is uh, Renee Van de Zen, and um, there are some some peculiarities of pronunciation that I'm going to allow him to handle through some of this, and uh, he assured me that I would not have to pronounce the name of the Dutch university that in his, is in his bio, so I'll, I'll leave that to you entirely. But uh, Rene founded Amerigo Group, which you'll hear a lot about today, a medical standards certification uh, founded in 1997, and he serves currently as his president and CEO. He's responsible for all operations of Amerigo Group, including its multiple international branches between 19... 90 and 97. Um, Mr. Walked to, uh, worked in Brussels as senior commercial specialist at the U.S. Mission to the European Union, and he participated in the uh, mutual recognition agreement uh, negotiations between the United States and the European Union. He's also participated in the transatlantic business dialogue between directors of American and European companies. He also has worked as senior issues coordinator for the EU Committee on uh, the American for the American Chamber of Commerce in Brussels and is managing director of the European American Industrial Council. As you can see, he's been very busy. He holds a postgraduate degree from Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies and a master's degree in contemporary history from the University of, and I will let him pronounce it for you. Uh, let me, um, at, at, while I'm here, also introduce our, um, our other guests for today and um, he'll be presenting uh, immediately following, and that is Clyde Baker. Clyde Baker serves as President, CEO, and Executive VP for Global Sales and Marketing for Onyx Life Technologies Incorporated. For more than 30 years, he's worked in the development, acquisition, and market launch of numerous new medical technologies. It's located in Austin, Texas. His company is, and its lead product is Onyx Prosthetic Heart Valve and... Um, also provides cardiovascular specialty products and pyrolytic carbon coating and contact manufacturing service services to other device manufacturers. And I hope I got all of that right. <laughs> Mr. Baker previously, <laughs> Mr. Baker previously served as a senior VP for Research Medical in, uh, Incorporated, responsible for customer satisfaction. Following acquisition, he served as VP of U.S. Sales and he has held marketing and business development positions with Desiree, Desiree, is that right? Desiree. Desiree, medical, um, now Becton uh, Dickinson Infusion Therapy, for Ballard Medical, Kimberly Clark, Chase Medical, and uh, Sorensen Medical. 
He holds a, a, a BS degree in business management and marketing from Brigham Young University. So with that, I'll invite our uh, first presenter to come to the podium. Very good. And I guess we have to stand up, but it's very challenging, these chairs. It's, it's very comfortable, not quite. It's a, my goodness. And then make no sound when you get up. Well, thank you for the introduction. Um, I have a few sciatic issues. I just had my uh, spine surgery, so I move around a little bit, so the cameraman actually has to work there this afternoon. Um, where to begin? Nijmegen. That is the, the city where I initially uh, did my uh, MA, history, um, and then international relations. So those are two type of uh, academic backgrounds that may not always be the, the normal one that you would expect when you get into the world of medical device compliance. So it's uh, very good to see a lot of faces here on a voluntary basis, I believe, students who are, are very keen and interested to hear about healthcare, I guess, in general. Uh, when Steve and I spoke uh, through email um, on several occasions, we were looking for a variety of topics. Uh, my to topic may not really totally uh, comply with the one in your, uh, in your program, but I do think I have something to say, maybe create some interest, particularly uh, among some of the students here. Uh, as you know, there are many professions out there, and trust me, I had no idea that I would be standing here telling you about uh, what I'm going to tell you. Uh, when I studied. Um, I had not much, many plans. Dutch in general don't have plans. They go to Amsterdam and then you get stuck. So, uh, but I moved, moved out and uh, eventually ended up here in Waco this afternoon. Um, so I'm going to tell you a few things. Now we haven't practiced this, but I use errors I presume. There we go. Used a lot of visuals because we're just coming back from lunch. Um, those that went to the cafeteria, I think downstairs, uh, we had a you know, very interesting meal, a lot of wine, which was really good. So <laughs> we, uh, that is what would happen if you're in Europe. So, and we're talking about global business here, and uh, wine and dining is very different. I always find the same in the evening, but the afternoons in Europe are still much better. So um, visuals. So I, I'm here to present you uh, the 10,000-foot view of a variety of areas. And I can talk about these areas for hours, if not days. Uh, my colleague, uh, Emery Bully, is also here, and she will definitely fall asleep after the second slide, hearing it so many times. But there are so many topics we can talk about. Um, but again, what I said earlier, I hope I will raise some awareness about a profession that is extremely keen and very, or very important in the world of medical device compliance. And Clyde may say absolutely right, or he say absolutely not. What a pain in the neck. These regulatory affairs people are in my company and constantly say, stop, you cannot go to Thailand, you cannot go to Europe, you cannot go to Mexico uh, because of all types of regulatory issues. So it's a very important role that is, uh, uh, let's say, by management and medical device who understands that it's, uh, it's, uh, they are far more successful uh, than those that do not understand it and many delays occur. So I talk about uh, medical devices. I will explain you what a medical device is. We're going to talk about some of the international regulations you run into if you are trying to go global. And we'll talk a little bit, I have one slide, but it's a keen slide for some of you, um, talk a little bit about careers and how you end up in the field of regulatory compliance in medical devices. So, so let's see. Um, the resume was pretty long. I went to a career office at the university and told me how to write it, so it's still the same, so, but it did happen. Um, but you will find out that uh, careers in our business is very interesting. So some very generics. I know we may have some economic majors here, undergrads. Uh, this is not going to turn you on. 
but it is very understandable from the get-go. I think um, the U.S. and Europe are, are the driving markets, uh, have been for many years when it comes to the world of medical devices, whether it's the manufacturing part of it or, or placing medical devices on the, in these uh, respective markets. Um, but there is a lot of growth happening in, in, in other markets than just these traditional two. Um, Japan, I would say, is another traditional market, a very challenging market uh, to get into uh, for a variety of reasons. It had very complicated regulatory requirements and also a cultural element to it, which not, doesn't always make it easier uh, to do global business. And then the 6% is left to the rest of the world, but we'll, we'll see that percentage grow uh, over years to come. So these are some of the uh, emerging markets. And... Um, there are statistics out there. Um, this slide is purely based uh, for two reasons. One, commercial reasons, because these are areas where our firm is, uh, uh, has established offices, uh, triggered by the interest that we see in industry. Um, I think uh, there's always been an interest for U.S. companies, medical device companies, to go abroad. Uh, but we've seen an increase, uh, particularly also the economy, of th of, uh, the economy down, downwards economy, that pushes companies to go and look, uh, look uh, outside the borders. And uh, these three countries are just examples. There are quite a few more where we see uh, an increasing interest for medical device manufacturers to, uh, to sell uh, devices. So on the left, for those that are not uh, recognizing these, uh, these countries, is uh, China. Um, and then we have Brazil and, uh, and uh, India, all three nice countries to visit from, for many different reasons, uh, but very, becoming very important markets for the medical device industry. So, some of the visuals. Um, you'll see uh, that's a hip implant on the right for those that wonder what it is. Um, but these are some of the, the device sectors we grow. Glide may, may have uh, another few areas that they think may be, uh, may be fast growing. We're all getting older, which is the good news for some of us, I guess. Um, and we want to be helped one way or the other. So we see a graying population in, in Europe, uh, to some extent in the United States. Uh, we all live longer. So the demand uh, for medical devices uh, in order to, uh, to keep going uh, with a fairly quality, I guess, of life, uh, we see grow, uh, many sectors within the device uh, world uh, growing. Um, this is just a, a brief listing of uh, some of the categories, um, screening and diagnostic uh, devices. It also includes in vitro diagnostics. Uh, if you were there, the last speaker, I was not here, but I saw from a distance some of the slides, and um, you saw some of those horrible infectious diseases listed. Well, in order to detect them, um, in vitro diagnostics is one area to do so. Um, we have orthopedics, I think, direct linked. Again, we're all getting older. I'm not sure if the uh, anatomy um, helps us, so we need some help to, uh, to make sure you can put your one foot for the other and backwards, hopefully. Um, cardiovascular, again, it doesn't take much, uh, I think, intelligence to understand that that's an area of growth. We see more home health care. Uh, driven by a variety of reasons, whether it is economics, um, uh, not enough uh, health care services to go outside. So we see more home care uh, devices uh, coming up uh, in the market. Um, wireless and telemedicine, of course, tech new technology changes the ballgame also. We see a lot of medical device companies jumping into this. Um, and then pain management in general, and I could use some of it actually today, but um, we'll move on. I don't, don't feel sorry for me in one second. Um, I would like now briefly touch upon um, 
two examples of a regulatory, a regulatory framework, some steps you have to go through before a device gets to market. And the easiest way to do is to stay with the traditional markets, which is the European Union and, uh, and the United States. Obviously, the United States has a home game. But these two markets and these two regulatory uh, regimes more or less have been driven anyway, uh, the worldwide regulatory requirements, um, even though these two old boys uh, do match up sometimes with each other, fight sometimes with each other, uh, do not accept what happens in other parts of the world and vice versa. Um, but um, I think it's uh, just a brief illustration uh, today to get you a bit of a flavor of uh, what regulatory compliance means. Um, let me see if there's anything else. We'll talk about some of the other requirements. So. Again, another illustration. Um, these are some of the authorities that you would be dealing with. If you work in a medical device company and you happen to be responsible or co-responsible or it's one of your 50 hats that you have to wear in the company because regulatory affair support is not always given the priority within companies. I'm not talking about high-risk device clients. They do their job in most cases very well. Um, but when you look at the, some of the lower-risk device manufacturers uh, or let's say the lower end of the medium risk, um, it's often either the person that is in marketing, which is very scary when they get into regulatory compliance, um, or um, somebody else who has another responsibility. Um, and then they want to go global. And, uh, and then they have to figure out what all the requirements are. Where is the overlapping? Uh, where is overlapping but doesn't help? Um, so these are government entities, and that's what you deal with. Um, governments like to protect their market, and they do that because they're responsible for protecting the public. So they have a role to play to ensure that the medical device industry is doing their job and their side of the bargain to ensure that the products that they place on the market are first and foremost safe, and then for certain authorities it's also very important that there's efficacy. In other words, that the device actually is doing what it's supposed to do and what you're claiming. And um, these governments, therefore, come up, uh, these countries come up with the requirements and the regulations as it's done here in the United States. Uh, FDA, which some of you may have heard of or not, uh, which is the agency here uh, in, in the United States that needs to ensure that companies uh, follow the rules. Um, they help with approvals for high-risk devices or clearance of devices for the medium risk. Um, and they inspect medical device companies. They literally knock on the door unannounced. If they're very nice, they give you a week notice. Uh, and they say, we're coming to pay you a visit and see if you meet all the requirements that, uh, that are put upon you, depending on what you manufacture. And um, that can, for many, be a frightening and nerve-wracking element. And again, a role for the regulatory affairs uh, professional. Uh, you would have a very important role when that happens. And you need to know all the ins and outs, what an inspection means, how to handle an inspection. There are really some... Uh, elements to it that you need to be aware of. An example, an FDA inspector can walk in and ask you a variety of questions. Certain questions they cannot be asked, but they have ways how to ask it. So you need to be trained and understood how that happens, and you don't want to give away anything that is not necessary. This sounds very negative, um, and in a way it is, and Clyde being a manufacturer maybe uh, can adhere to it or not, but um, you need to... Uh, uh, sometimes be cautious in what you say because it can be used against you. But again, this presentation is not here to say that uh, FDA does not do their job well or they are very dangerous and scary to the medical device industry and vice versa. The medical device industry has a very clear responsibility to ensure that they do what they're supposed to do and both have a very important role to play. So if you get sick of this picture now, let me know, then we'll move on. Um, but let me see, before we go, 
Um, FDA, we talked about. EU, we'll talk about that in a second. You'll see the Japanese have their authorities, inspection authorities. The SFDA is uh, China, um, and China, of course, is a large market. A lot of things are happening from a regulatory perspective. Trust me, when you want to sell or, let's say, have devices approved, it's quite cumbersome. Uh, cumbersome in many ways. Uh, a lot of the information is overlapping that you already have if you have approvals here in the United States or in Europe and or Europe, um, but there's still a review process that can be very lengthy. Um, some of you may have read it several years ago, um, we had to, and not so long ago, there were a variety of issues with product safety in, uh, in China. We've seen in the food, we've seen in the pharmaceutical, but also on the device side, and eventually led to the execution of the head of SFDA. So I don't think that we'll see that happen, we happen here very quickly, but um, has it therefore changed? Yes, things have changed in China. They, now the review periods take even longer, but nobody wants to take any decision, decisions. But um, things are moving in the right direction in China, and uh, they will catch up fairly rapidly. So COFAPRI is in Mexico, and then we have on Visa in Brazil. I mentioned those two because we'll talk about it in a second. And then HealthCanna. So for many of you, you can imagine what a device is. Uh, it's obvious, but there are a lot of products that you may not think is a, is a device. So these are the obvious ones, but you can also think about certain liquids, whether it's lubricants that can be used in combination with a catheter. Those are considered medical devices or accessory to medical devices. So uh, you could have uh, certain scar treatment, uh, silicone sheets, you know, just little plastic sheets. Well, we call that medical devices. Um, here I give you an example. If you start on the, on the left side, you see uh, many of the students may be interested when you get a little bit older like I, I definitely should use it. Um, so these are devices here in the U.S. In Europe, they are actually cosmetics. Um, so that's another element of regulatory compliance and being a regulatory affairs professional. You ask the question, is my product a device? If it is, uh, is it the same everywhere uh, or in other countries? We see on the left bottom side, we see a pacemaker. Hope you never need to use it, but um, it's, a, it's a fantastic device that saves your life. So uh, it's good it's out there. Then I'll, I'll finish with the, the person in the middle here. But on the right bottom, something that Clyde is very familiar with is a heart valve. And you want to make sure that that heart valve works because uh, we have some, some issues if it doesn't. Uh, and on the right bottom or the right top, we have a uh, heart monitor. So just, just some examples of devices. In the center, we have a device which is actually uh, the X-ray film could be considered a medical device. The X-ray uh, software could be a med medical device. So sometimes not even tangible. Um, and, um, and then we see Stuart Goldman. This is actually a person that we know. He is uh, one of our colleagues uh, in our office. He's a regulatory affairs consultant. And he uh, gave us permission to begin with to uh, use his uh, x-ray. And he also gave us permission to use his name because he's very proud of the implants that he carries in his face. Um, and in his neck, if you look very carefully, you see some screws and some plates. Um, he has a few more, but uh, because this is a university, we have to be careful so we only stick to the chest and up. Um, he also has a variety of implants uh, in his mouth. As you could see, he lost all his teeth. Um, he decided to go on a little uh, bicycle ride in Utah in mid-80s and got hit by uh, a car from behind, and he fell forward on his cheek. And the result is here. Um, several hundreds of pieces was his cheek. Um, a manufacturer who just came out with uh, uh, cheek implants, which is, uh, I don't have a, just... Below the ear, you see a little, that's the cheek implant. And um, a manufacturer in Houston, Texas, I believe, um, Swiss origin, 
um, and was implanted. He went through a very lengthy rehab as a result of it, um, and then was recalled. So, and the recall means uh, uh, he was told that these implants are not safe because the manufacturer had made some manufacturing issue, uh, mistakes. Uh, I think it had to do with uh, cleanliness, um, I believe, oil issues, I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, he had to uh, go back into the hospital, take the implants out and get new ones, and again, go through the whole rehab. Um, nice illustration that things can go wrong when you manuf manufacture medical devices. In this case, this company made some critical mistakes, uh, not follow proper uh, quality system uh, uh, procedures within the company, and, uh, and therefore is also not existing anymore. It was one of the first big recall cases in the United States uh, of this magnitude with implants. Um, and then he has uh, a few teeth implants, if you see, and everything else. So anyway, he's doing well. He, has a, he needs pain management, just like me, but he's been doing this now for 20, 30 years, and he said I should not complain. So that is what I will do then. I won't complain. Another thing that's very important that determines with what type of scrutiny is going to apply to a medical device. Um, medical devices are divided in classifications from low, low to high risk and medium risk. And these, I, I showed you the European Union uh, classification and, and the US. And in a way, they're always similar. There's this medium risk, low risk, medium risk, and a high risk. And then it deviates a little bit sometimes what the Europeans have done. Canada, for that matter, the Australians have followed the European model uh, that they have split the medium risk into. So that is not important for you in this, the context of this discussion. What is important for you to realize that classifications, the high from low risk and, and the medium, determines a little bit the type of activity that you need to go through in order to get products approved uh, globally. So. so this is an example for, for the USA, uh, for, for the US. Um, we mentioned uh, the two. These are the kind of the medium risk and the high risks. Uh, the low risk uh, are not listed here, but low risks also require registration of devices because FDA wants to know who's manufacturing class one devices, the lower risk, in case there is a problem. And also they want to have the opportunity to inspect you. Not that that happens because FDA, although they're in a great hiring mode right now, uh, they don't have enough field inspectors uh, to inspect every medical device company. So, and therefore, they have to be kind of selective who they put on the radar screen and who they actually will visit. And uh, that normally tends to happen with class two devices. Uh, and that require, in most cases, what we call 510K clearance. Um, and you have to visualize that as a... a technical document that you need to compile that tells you that similar type of products have been approved already in the market, that you are similar in its intended use and its claims and its safety and its efficacy. And, uh, and then you submit that to FDA and they will review that there are some review timelines through it that you need to manage and be aware of uh, as a, uh, a regulatory affairs uh, um, specialist or person manager in, your, in the company. Um, let me see if there's anything else. The PMA, this is when you're dealing about with devices that are high risk um, and, and or where you are making certain claims that are new. In other words, there are no other devices in the market that make that claim. Uh, and now uh, FDA requires you to, uh, to actually conduct clinical studies uh, where you have to show the safety and efficacy. And that is a, a long-term project that can last uh, one year plus. Uh, it should have said almost close to two years in most cases. also very expensive. And FDA, in the old days for most of these clearances did not charge you, and that has changed too. So your taxpayer's money is not enough anymore, and now you have to pay money in order to get these reviews done, and in quite a few cases to be declined every now and then, which is hard to hear, but it does happen. Some general changes that we see also in the U.S. is uh, the increasing need for clinical data. 
So it becomes more and more difficult, and this is one of the new trends, so at least my first trend I could mention. So it's going to be uh, harder even just to compare products with another that may be approved. Clinical data is going to be critical of submissions. So quality management system, I mentioned that earlier. I discussed the recall of uh, the, uh, the, the um, bone, the chicken plant of uh, Stewart. Um, Companies need to requ are required to implement quality management systems to ensure that they manufacture something in a safe manner and in a consistent manner. Um, and that is something that you will see across the board with a lot of countries have similar type of requirements. Um, I think I can move on with those details. This is Europe. In Europe, in a nutshell, there are a variety of laws. Europe, one internal market. The national member states have given up on their national laws and have uh, left that to Brussels and the governments of, of the national member states to come up with harmonized laws. And that has happened throughout the 80s and the 90s. Uh, all, a variety of product groups have now been formally harmonized under one set of rules and laws, which then go back to the member states and are transposed in the national laws of those, uh, those particular countries. Uh, the medical device directive, it should be devices directive, but um, is the most common one where most medical devices have to deal with. So, so that's one thing. You need to be aware when you go to Europe that these laws exist now and you need to meet them. Um, there are a variety of ways how you can comply with, with, uh, with these laws. Um, and again, as a regulatory affairs official, you need to be aware of those and what is best for, for the device, what is possible for the device, um, and again, to determine cost, timelines, and everything else. Quality system, ISO 13485 is an international standard that is now widely accepted and recognized by many countries as the quality management system. The U.S., they know of it, but don't fully recognize it. So FDA has its own quality system regulations. That is what you need to adhere to. Um, but most of the rest of the world is moving towards accepting ISO 13485 as a de facto standard to meet the quality system requirements. Technical file, I just threw it out there. That's a terminology in Europe that we use for kind of the 510K. It's that technical documentation that you need to compile, and eventually you'll submit to authorities. Notify bodies. These are the FDA agents that I, or inspectors I was talking about. Europe has a different system where inspections are being conducted by delegated authorities. And therefore, you will be inspected every year if you sell certain classification of devices. So different from, from the United States. And then authorized representative. Most countries in the world require that you have somebody locally who can act as a point of contact for either inspection authorities or for agencies. The U.S. has it also for non-U.S. manufacturers selling in the United States. You need to have a U.S. agent. It can be a distributor, a manufacturer, an uncle, a family member. could be anything. Uh, in other countries, it's often uh, either distributors or a professional organization. Actually, our firm is one of the larger providers for that service. And that's why I'm mentioning it. And then we have CE marking, which is the compliance, um, uh, I guess, uh, acronym that tells anybody, particularly inspection authorities, that you are in compliance. It stands for Conformité Européenne, a trade barrier sound or not, but it's a, a formal and well-known certification. Medical device registration in the rest of the world. I didn't realize that this would happen this way. Okay. Um, there we go. Um, a lot of these countries, we were talking about some of the emerging markets, um, they require, in most cases, similar type of requirements. As I mentioned earlier, there is no immediate recognition um, of, of approval somewhere else. But these countries do accept it one way or the other. They know that you have the proper documentation that they would like to receive and review and translate it, of course, in the national language, um, that you will, you will have that available. 
I mentioned home country approval. Not uncommon, but sometimes a major challenge for, for U.S. companies because they may have approval to sell in Europe but not in the U.S. yet. Could be different classifications. They have problems with FDA, uh, a cumbersome road to compliance, and therefore went to another market. Of course, Europe is not a home country approval, so they, you, suddenly you run into some challenges. Mexico is an example. Brazil is an example. If you don't have it, Korea, China, um, challenges. So um, these are all the nice variations and issues you deal with as a regulatory affairs official, and you will be, in most cases, the person you're going to tell the management, and then they're going to tell you, "Go away. You don't want to hear this." So. Um, I just throw in a stat. We do see some harmonization globally. And there is a, we see particularly opportunities in those markets which you would not immediately expect it. You would say Europe and the U.S. would harmonize a lot of this information and put it all in the similar format. Not happening yet. The stat is a result of a, a harmonization program. Um, that leads me to the next slide. Uh, between Europe, U.S., Japan, Australia, um, the larger markets who do sit together in the Global Harmonization Task Force, and the STED is, a, is a, a way where they're trying to at least harmonize and have similar type of documents that you can submit to multiple regulatory agencies, the ones that I listed for a while uh, on the slide. So let me see if there's anything else here to say. This is, I guess, the way we're trying to harmonize and get a little bit closer. So there's a clear understanding, not only in industry, of course, because they want it in most cases, uh, but governments and countries are starting to realize that harmonization is an important element and can do away with not only making it easier for companies, but obviously allowing companies to sell high-quality devices in the market, which the public needs. So uh, on the one hand, they cannot be a hurdle to uh, access of, of, of the public to uh, the needed uh, uh, medical devices in this case. Uh, on the other hand, they have to, that fiduciary duty to ensure that devices are safe. So the general acceptance of other market or other countries' approvals is still a hard concept um, because of that, that uh, responsibility that governments have to protect the people. So, but we do see a growing international standards development activity. We see acceptance uh, of harmonized standards, and these standards are developed by all these countries anyway. They sit around the table, go to nice islands, have long meetings, and have great also wine and dining. But eventually we do come up with these standards that can be applied. You as a regulatory affairs professional need to be aware of what these standards are. You need to stay abreast of them. Not easy, but it pays your salary. So um, the redundant testing and inspections, very costly for companies, uh, and therefore uh, more harmonization, more acceptance of testing would be absolutely great. But I can tell you we see a variety of trends. In certain areas it happens, in others it does not happen. You go through redundant testing in, in countries, uh, Brazil, is one of them on electric safety. These standards are all identical, but they still want you to go through, make sure that you make their labs happy, I guess, and, and keep them feeding. So mutual recognition agreements is an initiative that already exists in the 90s between Europe and the United States. Europe has many agreements with other uh, nations where they try to uh, uh, allow their certification bodies to do some tests to the specifications of the other country. So it's not that they accept whatever is being done based on, on that particular country's requirements. So you do still need to meet the requirements of the other country. But it's a, it was a nice initiative. It looked good on my resume. But it's just another political government initiative. So these are some of the harmonization efforts I mentioned earlier. We see a lot of harmonization activities in, in the Asia region, which is good. They have an opportunity to harmonize and not be colored by the long traditional relationship that the U.S. and, and Europe had and the, and the biggering every now and then. So we do see these organizations making a strong effort to, uh, to at least uh, require similar type of requirements to, uh, to uh, avoid redundancy. 
Um, the quality management system, I mentioned that earlier, so we can go through this very quickly. I, uh, my office prepared this presentation with all the illustration. I was thinking about Dr. Ballard's presentation about the good record of quality and less patients dying in the hospital. And I, I, I totally envisioned this, this picture where you know, the surgeon and the nurse are looking, where the hell did I leave my scissor? Huh? <laughs> Isn't it? It's almost like that. But. Um, and by the way, there are a lot of innovation in that system too, because I know I tell it as a joke, but it happens quite, it happens, I shouldn't say quite a lot. And therefore, there are medical device companies who come with little sensors, which you can attach to, you know, band-aids and everything, anything that's around the surgical area, arena, uh, and even with instruments. So they can actually track down where everything is, and they can count it. And counting, if you ever had an operation and you were not under anesthesia, there are a lot of instruments floating around in, in a place like that. Um, let me see. Again, I, am, I can say that I've been around for a while, so I can say these big things. But uh, um, obviously, corporation initiatives uh, are in place, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, as I said, also, some are very effective and, and, uh, and some are promising. Others, we see developments on the national level, again, which makes it difficult. Brazil, an obviously emerging market, but suddenly is required now that also their inspectors need to uh, inspect all manufacturers that have devices registered in, in Brazil. Uh, they need to be inspected by May 22nd. Well, it's not going to happen. They have 11 inspectors. So, worldwide. And you have to pay $25,000 on top of it. So, these are these type of issues that we don't want to see. But uh, they require a lot of careful... Let's see. Oh, careers. I already told you a little bit how to maybe how to become a regulatory affairs if you're still interested in this because um, it is a great profession. There are a variety of disciplines I think academically you could follow that makes you a good candidate. I think to be in science and biology, etc., uh, the engineering side I think are, are very good backgrounds to have. But um, if you are a, a liberal arts major like I was, it is possible. And um, um, it's a very interesting profession. It's an important profession. You're part of ensuring that your employer um, is following the rules and the requirements as best as you can. You're part of a marketing strategy to get products to market. Um, it's not always understood by your fellow departments, I can tell you that. But um, it, it is a, a, good, a good profession to be in, one of those that you would never have known and maybe even your career office is not aware of. Um, a lot of uh, uh, people end up with this type of profession just, as I mentioned earlier, doing something else in medical device companies. But we've seen some academic programs. I don't think Baylor has one. Um, and I think you all should go outside, pull up the barricades, and say Baylor needs to have a program on <laughs> regulatory compliance. Uh, but uh, USC is one of them, has a, a seminar, but it's still very thin. Regulatory Affairs Professional Society, RAPS, is one of the few in the country there where you can become an individual member and enhance your knowledge in regulatory compliance. So, but I think uh, it would be nice if uh, universities step into this also and, and to look at a little bit more closely and what the opportunities are. <laughs> and with that, any questions, but I think we can do that later. Let's move on. Very good. So, I don't know. Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Clyde Baker. I'm with Onyx Life Technologies. Uh, we're located in the north part of Austin. Um, I'm uh, pleased, uh, kind of honored, to be asked to present here. I have uh, never been on your campus before now. 
Uh, actually, I don't know if I've even worked with someone from Baylor University in the past, but uh, so far I'm uh, very favorably impressed and uh, very happy uh, to be here. Uh, pleased to uh, follow Renee in his presentation. Uh, I can tell you from a, uh, I li I, my most favorite title is uh, Capitalist Pig. <laughs> uh, and that's, if someone calls me that, I say thank you. I think it's a great, uh, but but I'll tell you as a business person uh, in the medical device industry that regulatory is integral uh, to our business strategy. Uh, you will not uh, be in the business very long if it isn't a key element of your uh, business strategy. So uh, it was uh, great to hear that uh, uh, presentation. I, I am. Uh, extremely grateful for our regulatory people within our company. We have uh, three people. One of them uh, began with the FDA, actually wrote the first medical device uh, regulations. And he is a, a giant asset uh, to our company. And I'm really pleased that uh, uh, we have him in our, in our company. Uh, I, I have focused on our international business, and I hope that this will be of use to you. Um, I, I suspect most of you uh, know the anatomy. There are four valves in your heart, and they open and close, and uh, they allow blood in, and they prevent blood from going uh, back in the wrong direction. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, it's it's a, a very interesting uh, clinical field. Uh, there are two types basically two types of valves available uh, in, in the world today, and those are mechanical. These are made with uh, carbon. Uh, carbon is uh, uh, formed around uh, graphite substrates at about 1,400 degrees. And then uh, uh, the sewing cuffs, uh, or Dacron or uh, uh, Teflon, are put on, and those help to sew the valve into the annulus in the heart. Uh, the other type of valve that's used uh, is a tissue valve from uh, cow or pig tissue. And there's a big uh, debate uh, taking place uh, right now in the marketplace, and that is between mechanical and tissue valves. Mechanical valves uh, last uh, for a whole life. Uh, they, they last several lifetimes, uh, but they require anticoagulation, so patients have to take drugs and be monitored. Uh, tissue valves uh, do not last a life. They, they last maybe 10 to 15 years, and uh, in most cases do not require uh, drugs to be uh, maintained. Uh, so far, the tissue valves are uh, winning uh, the contest in the last uh, few years. And this is only recent history, but you can see in the light blue uh, columns is the mechanical valve marketplace, and it has continued to decline. Uh, this, this study was done only two years ago, and they expected mechanical valves would de continue to decline in use uh, about 7.6% compound annual. Uh, but, fortunately, recent studies show that's not what's uh, actually happening. And we, we think there are many uh, reasons why uh, mechanical valves will come back into um, uh, more uh, use. Uh, but that's a very long discussion, so uh, I'll, I'll save that for another day. Uh, our company is about 16 years old. 
uh, was founded uh, in 1994 uh, and primarily because of a breakthrough in carbon and, meta and, and heart valve design uh, breakthroughs. Uh, we, uh, in addition to the cardiovascular product, the, uh, the heart valve, we also manufacture implants, uh, primarily hand and finger joints. Uh, the companies we work with are already in the orthopedic business. Uh, in the next year, one of the companies will be introducing a, a shoulder device made of uh, our carbon products. And we have uh, worldwide uh, regulatory approval for our products. Uh, the company's investors have been primarily the founders, uh, which was a very large engineering staff who had all these great ideas and decided to uh, build a new company. And they put a lot of money into the company. Uh, distributors, surgeons. Uh, in uh, uh, 2002, a royalty-based uh, venture firm came into uh, the company and put uh, $14 million into the company. Uh, they, the royalties became uh, quite arduous over a, a short period of time, and our company decided to recapitalize, which meant that we took the debt that we owed to the royalty-based capital firm and we converted it to uh, uh, equity in the company. So, and we added one firm, uh, 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 Austin-based uh, venture capital firm. Uh, as a result of that whole recapitalization, the original founders do not have a very high percentage of the company. Uh, this is pretty common in, uh, in the venture world today. Uh, and the, uh, but the company has no debt. The company has working capital. Uh, but they are primarily owned uh, by the venture capital folks. Uh, and and uh, this, this is, you know, if you're going to invest your money, you might want to think about putting it with uh, venture capitalists rather than investing it directly in, because these guys are really smart uh, business people. Uh, the founder of our company, Jack Bolkris, has been honored by many of the material societies in America. Uh, he was the person back uh, in the 60s who came, uh, collaborated with some heart surgeons and came up with the idea of using carbon as an uh, implantable substance. Uh, uh, and heart valves turned out to be one of the very first uh, uh, substances they used. But uh, he, he has had, he, he actually began in the nuclear industry, was putting carbon around radioactive fuel <coughs> particles. And that turned into uh, a whole career of heart valves. And he's the founder of this company and several others uh, uh, that, that are in this industry. The breakthrough was uh, the carbon. Uh, we were able to produce pure carbon. Uh, as opposed to, you see on the uh, right side, uh, silicon alloy carbon. On the left side is pure carbon, our onyx carbon. And you, and you uh, having some uh, uh, biologic uh, background, I'm sure you can appreciate what blood does when it sees irregular surfaces. It starts to clot. And so uh, the, the, the pure carbon is obviously a better surface. This is one of our competitors, uh, valve pivots. And you can see imperfections all over the, uh, within that. This is our valve pivot. So, so they came up with a process to be able to coat to exact dimensions. They did no longer need to grind the material to get the dimension to make the valve work the way that it was supposed to. There's another illustration. Uh, then we uh, redesigned the valve. 
the onyx valve is the one on the left side here, which looks very much like the natural valve. It uh, doesn't create turbulence and doesn't destroy blood cells. Uh, we've been so fortunate with this valve and the, and the clinical data that we've been able to have the FDA approve a trial with this valve at lower anticoagulation levels than any other mechanical valve. In fact, one of our patient group doesn't use Coumadin, which is the main drug that's used to anticoagulate these uh, patients. It just uses aspirin and Plavix. So uh, we've made some real progress. Uh, there are these three uh, patient groups, uh, a low-risk uh, uh, aortic valve group, a higher-risk aortic valve group, and a, um, a mitral group. It's a, a beautiful study being conducted in 40 major institutions in the United States, including uh, Baylor uh, in uh, Dallas is a, one of our uh, study sites. Uh, so far, it looks very possible that we will succeed at this and be able to reduce the anticoagulation level. This will bring uh, the, uh, the opportunity for patients to have uh, no increase in their uh, morbid events, the bleeding that sometimes takes place because of the anticoagulation, and at the same time never have to face a reoperation. Uh, and what generally happens with these patients is the reoperations happen at old age. They have to face a reoperation when they're 75, 80, 85 years old. Most of these patients say, no, thank you. I've lived a good life. Well, they shouldn't have to make that decision. They should be able to have a valve that lasts for their whole life. So, so that's what we're trying uh, to get for them. We have a very seasoned and capable uh, management team. Uh, we, uh, in the United States, have a hybrid uh, organization. Some of the people work directly for our company. Many are independent people who carry other uh, surgical products. Every country in the world, we have a different independent distributor. And those distributors become our partners, and they help us with uh, many of the regulatory issues within uh, their countries. Uh, I'll get to the dilemma that we face uh, selling products internationally. Uh, this is an overview. Worldwide market is about 400,000 heart valves, a $1.5 billion marketplace. Uh, as you can see, the uh, largest part of the mechanical valve marketplace is outside of the United States. And that would not necessarily be a problem because we started selling in the outside the United States. Right now, you know, uh, of the units, almost 80% of the units go outside of the United States. But the problem is the selling price. In the United States, we can sell a valve for about $4,500. Outside of the United States, we can sell a valve for about $1,000. Well, $1,000 happens to be about the cost to make a valve. So the question is, how, how to succeed in this marketplace where most of the valves are outside the U.S., but that's where you don't make money? So it's, it's been uh, quite challenging. Fortunately, we've grown rapidly in the United States. This is a profile. We're a private company, so we don't put the actual numbers on there. But, but uh, you can see it's been a remarkable growth in a market that is, as you saw at the beginning, declining. Uh, I, I feel really good about that. The other thing about the international market, it's a little erratic. Things happen outside the United States that make for not very uh, predictable uh, results. You can see the dark blue is our uh, U.S., the light blue is our international. We kind of peaked in our international business in 2007. 
And then we came back down. Well, you know, your venture capitalists just don't like to see anything go downward. So it's a, it's a serious problem uh, that you've got to be able to address as a company. Uh, this is a graph of those actual volumes over the years. The red is the United States. The, all the others are the other regions of the world. Take, take the U.S. away, and you can see a few key places we had problems last year. Uh, Japan, uh, Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe uh, capital became very constricted last year. Uh, you know about the financial crisis that, that took place in, in this country. Well, it, it, it hit Eastern Europe harder than almost anywhere. And their health care systems are on a budget. And their government sets the budget. And they say, we're going to spend this much money on cardiac surgery. Make it work. That's it. That's all you're going to get. So patients who are marginally incompetent, I'm sorry, you're getting your heart valve next year. That, that's the way they do business. So that impacted us, obviously. So here's the situation. We have this great mechanical valve. Uh, we have really good penetration in a declining market. We've done a, a, a great job as a management team to, to solve this. Uh, the big units are outside uh, the, the, the U.S. The, the good Selling prices, U.S. and Japan is, a, is another country. Uh, so we have this uh, dilemma of how, how to succeed as a, as a company. Uh, sometimes we think it would be great for somebody to smack us in the back of the head and push our head in ice water, and we would be able to figure out how to make a success out of that marketplace because it, it's, so, it's so challenging for us. So here's what we have done. We've invested our uh, sales and marketing resources in the United States and, and in Japan. And we've been driving those markets. And as you can see, we're getting traction in those markets. So that really helps in terms of increasing the profitability of the company. Uh, we continue to upgrade our independent distributors who can get higher and higher percentages of market penetration. We signed a long-term agreement with one of our OEM companies that we supply the orthopedic products to. Uh, we are so fortunate that uh, we are in the same city that uh, used to be occupied by another heart valve manufacturer, Carbomedics. Carbomedics was purchased by an Italian company and moved out of Austin. Four very large manufacturing buildings are sitting in North Austin virtually unoccupied. We now we leased one of those buildings. That's twice as much space as we used to have for only about a, f a quarter more than we used to pay. Excellent. It helped us out with, in a lot of ways. The last 15 employees we hired were former Carbometics uh, people. We bought about a million dollars worth of equipment uh, last year for about $100,000. It's used equipment, but it, it really still works great. So, so that has been a, a great help to us. We are going to work to drive our costs down. If we can sell 15 to 20,000 units outside the U.S. and drive our costs down by $100, just $100 on our heart valve, we'll pick up uh, $1.5 million every year in cash. That's what we have to do. We have to drive our costs down so we can still compete outside the U.S. And uh, let's see, we're expanding our product line. So this is a picture of the facility. We're adding a new product. Uh, this is a, a, a valve with a graft on it. So if they have to replace both the valve and the aorta, 
they can do it without having to attach. Uh, we're adding a smaller size for Japan and Ch uh, Asia. Uh, it's a 17-millimeter valve. We're starting to import. I found this device in Europe. Uh, what it does is diffuse CO2 over the heart. CO2 uh, uh, is uh, metabolized in your blood 20 times faster than oxygen. So you don't get air embolus in your, in your brain if you have CO2. It just metabolizes. If you have air, though, you could have uh, uh, neural problems. So this has been a really great device for us. You, you probably can't see, but on one side there's bubbles. Uh, this is on a, a esophageal echo. Uh, so we've had great uh, uh, pickup with that product. Uh, we just signed an uh, agreement with uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, uh, Mark Gilanov, I don't know if any of you know. Mark Gilanov is a surgeon that worked on uh, Robin Williams. You might have heard his name. He's real, he does more mitral valves than any other surgeon in America. We just signed a development agreement to help do these little cords that are on the underneath side of a mitral valve. And surgeons kind of needed a little bit of help. Some surgeons can do it, but they, they needed help. Uh, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, diversify just a little bit our, our portfolio, and that will help us to grow. So our objectives this year are uh, to get to uh, revenue growth and actual net income. 16 years, companies never made net income for a full year. And you don't know how that could be. How can a company survive? Now, we, I'll just tell you, because I, uh, I have the pulpit. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are anticipating under the new health care, a little device company like this in Austin, Texas, $20, $20 million, will have a, a tax on us between a half million and a million dollars. Uh, I'm not sure how we're going to do that. I mean, people will have to lose jobs. So uh, there isn't going to be free uh, anything. Uh, there's going to be uh, challenges for us. Uh, it's a great industry. Uh, I, I love this. I've spent my whole life in the device industry, but I, I really worry for our ability to continue to compete, to generate capital infusion, that we've been able to and to, to, to get innovation in our country. Uh, we have to watch our cash. There was times in my uh, tenure at Onyx where uh, it came time to pay payroll. And I'd have to say, well, do we have enough cash for payroll? Can we hold off on some of the checks to vendors to make payroll? It is not easy. It is not easy. It's tough. Uh, to, to, to run a little business. Uh, we are going to complete our trial uh, that the FDA has authorized. We're going to continue to add products. We're going to complete our facility and drive the cost down on our manufacturing, and we're going to develop these new products. So uh, that's our strategy. Thank you. <laughs> Clyde and Renee, in the uh, interest of time and because of our compressed schedule, I think we'll suspend our question and answer time and uh, move fairly quickly to our next session. So uh, thank you so much for coming, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the Global Business Forum.